We're stalling a little bit in Genesis 6 this morning. You know, I've been in Genesis for almost a year, and we haven't done six chapters yet. Uh, my goal is to get through the first 12 chapters as a section and then take a break. I was thinking a year would do it, Stan, but it looks like it'll be two anyway. We're stalled in chapter 6 this morning. I didn't I didn't want to proceed until we talked about uh, an issue that's raised by the text. It's actually assumed by the text, but I didn't want to skip over it because I think culturally, in the time and place we live, this is a key, key theme. It's something that you'll end up talking about with probably almost anyone you talk about Christ and the gospel with. This theme of judgment will come up. Judgment. If you have a conversation with folks in our culture today, there's typically two views uh, having to do with are there moral absolutes, are there things that are really wrong and really right? And if yes, is there anyone to whom we actually give an account or is there anyone that will actually require a penalty or some kind of judgment related to the things we do wrong? Is there right and wrong? And if there is, and that's a question, is there right and wrong? And if yes, uh, do we actually owe an account to anyone? Can anyone hold us accountable for the things we do wrong if there's right and wrong? Most people in our culture would say something like this. Either there's no God, so therefore there's no moral accountability, there's no moral judgment. There's no God, so there's no accountability, no judgment. Or we might say, excuse me, I'm really, I'm phlegmy anyway, but I'm really phlegmy this morning. Sorry. No God, so no judgment, no moral absolutes, so nothing to worry about. Or there might be a God, and if there is, he or she is probably someone like me, which means they're kind of a nice person, And they wouldn't do anything nasty or harmful to someone else. There's also this view. uh, That's one side. There's also this side. If you talk to people and you're understood to be a Christian, there's often the assumption that your point of view is that God is a mean-spirited old guy who's against people having a good time. And so judgment is his specialty or his forte that God excels in judgment. Thank you, honey. That if the Christian God is real, he's a mean-spirited, judgmental little fellow that they don't want anything to do with. The Scripture says these points of view both are wrong, they're mistaken. But the passage in Genesis focuses on this whole element of judgment. And it actually focuses on grace as well. But we're going to start in Genesis 6. We'll actually skip through a few different verses, verses 7 through 9. Then we'll also look at 13, 17, and into chapter 7 at verse 4. But you'll see in this passage of the flood, this judgment account, that you've got both God's judgment and God's grace being highlighted in the same story. So Genesis 6 Starting at verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. 
for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Verse 16, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, Behold, I, even I, if there's any confusion about the cataclysm that's coming, God makes sure Noah knows it's not a natural event, it's a supernatural judgment. I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. And then into chapter 7 at verse 4, After seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Now, first to this judgment issue. It's quite descriptive. Uh, Verse 7, I will blot out mankind. The Hebrew is makah, and the thought is it's to... uh, blot out, wash off, wipe out. I was thinking of this passage yesterday when I was cleaning my dog pen. And you know, when our two dogs have been in the dog pen for a few days, let's say, it's not a pleasant place to be. And so you've got to come out and you clean it up and then you, you, know, you take the hose and you wash it down. And that's the thought here. Uh, the earth is sort of turned into, in, dog, in uh, God's sense, it's a stinky dog pen. And he's going to clean it up. He's going to wash it thoroughly. So he says in verse 4 the same thing, I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And then the same term is used in 2 Kings 21.13. This is more graphic and more helpful in my mind. Maybe not more graphic than the dog pen, but... I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Same Hebrew term. In the Second Kings passage, God says Jerusalem's a dish, it's dirty, I'm going to turn it upside down and then I'm going to wash it so that everything that was in it is gone. All the dirty stuff, all the pollution stuff in it, it's all gone. Turned upside down, whatever can fall out, does fall out. And whatever sticks to it, I wipe off. Well, that's the same thought here. God says the earth has become this polluted dish, and I'm going to wipe it clean. Very much a judgment term here. He also says in verse 13, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Verse 17, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. And verse 4 in chapter 7, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. I'm going to blot out, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to end all flesh life on the earth. Anything that draws breath, I'm going to end their life on the earth. In our culture and in our time, this is the question that comes to my mind. Is it okay for God to judge? The story takes it for granted, but I think this... uh, That's why we want to stop, Parker, for just a minute. Is it okay for God to judge men and women on the world? Is it okay for God to do what are essentially harmful things to creatures because He's found them morally wanting? Is that okay? Does God have a right to say certain things are right and wrong? And if He does, does He have a right to judge? In our culture, in our time, this is an important question. This passage, of course, says that He does. Listen to the first reason 
God may judge. There's two reasons we'll look at. The first one just tells us that God may judge us. He can judge us. He has the right to judge us. Back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God's talking about the creation of man, He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us make man in our image. In verse 27 he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In our passage here in verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. I am sorry that I have made them. And in verse 4 of chapter 7, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Do you see what God's saying here? Mankind on the earth, we're His creation. We're His possession, if you will, because He made us. And God has a right to do with His creation as He sees fit. If you and I have a possession, and just take away the, the personality issue for a minute, if you and I have a possession and we put it in our closet or we it's clothing and we put it on in the morning, if it's dishes in the kitchen, whatever it is, no one questions you if you use your possessions as you see fit. Because they're yours, they belong to you, you have a right and authority to do with them as you see fit. God says He made us and we're His. And He has a right to do with us as He sees fit. God can do with His possessions as He chooses. He has that right. When you get into the New Testament, this question comes up again. Does God have a right to judge? Or, when God judges, does He judge right? Is God unfair? This is in Romans 9. It's one of the key passages, by the way, in all the Bible about God's equity and judgment. In Romans 9, verses 20 and 21, when Paul's sort of defending God or explaining God's judgments, the bottom line for Paul is this. He, he says some other things, but this is the bottom line. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Paul says in the final analysis, as creatures on this earth, we are possessions of God. And God may choose to do whatever He chooses with us, and it's morally okay, because He made us. We're His, so it's okay. Now, this doesn't get into the issues about God's righteousness and sovereignty and everything else. We're not going there this morning. But Paul says at the end of the day, related to what God does and doesn't do related to people, Paul says you're like a lump of clay that God picks up, He molds to His use, and He uses. And who are you to say to the one who made you, you shouldn't do that? Who are you to sit in judgment on the one who formed you? That's Paul's argument. It's his bottom line. I'm convinced that the key reason we, and I'm thinking specifically of the United States and the Western mentality in our day today, the reason we have a problem, the, the bottom line reason we have a problem with the thought 
of moral absolutes and God judging is that we've mistakenly come to believe that we're God and that we're autonomous and that we choose the day of our birth or our conception and we'll choose the day of our death and we decide who made the world and we decide what's right and wrong if there is a right and wrong. There's this delusion. There's this delusional element to Western mentality and to Western culture that writes God off. In fact, there's a psalm that says, you thought I was like you because I didn't come down and judge immediately. And it, it lends itself to this delusion if we, if we tend to think along those lines. God hasn't judged us recently. Maybe there isn't a God. And maybe I'm God instead. Maybe I'm free to call the shots as I see fit. We're deluded. We've deceived ourselves. That deception ends, of course, at death eventually, if it hasn't ended sooner. But we delude ourselves that we've taken God's place. Now, God's under no such illusion. So in Noah's day, he says, Noah, this is what I'm doing. All those people that I made, they've polluted themselves. They've polluted everything I made. I'm, I'm washing them off. I'm clearing them out. I'm cleaning them out. I'm starting over. God didn't ask their permission. God didn't ask them if they thought it was fair or right. God said, I've made them. This is not what I had in mind. I'm starting over and I'm washing the dish clean. In Isaiah's day, chapter 28, I'll actually read a few verses there, um, spread out a bit. In Isaiah's day, God was talking to the Jews and he was warning them about impending judgment based on the way they were living life. And I think not unlike people in our day, they chose instead of listening to God, of respecting who God was and what he was saying to them, they chose himself very intentionally to deceive their own minds. So in Isaiah 28, 15, God says, You have said to yourselves, we've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol or with the grave we've made a pact. That is, in their mind, they're saying, we've struck an agreement with whatever powers that may be that judgment's not going to come on us. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge. We have concealed ourselves with deception. God says the Jews in Isaiah's day, they checked out rationally. God said judgment's coming. These armies are going to pass through. The, the floods of judgment in their day will come through. And they've said, well, they're not going to reach us. And they didn't say so because there was some rational reason to think judgment wouldn't hit them. They just decided in their minds that it wouldn't. And so for them, it was so. I think that's just like the culture we live in today. We've decided either there's no God or He's like me or He won't judge me in the end. And we've taken hope in what Isaiah calls deception. We've deceived ourselves. Sometimes we just think God's a nice guy. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to along this line. God's a nice guy. And so he knows I'm a nice guy. And so at the end of the day, one nice guy will say to another nice guy, come on in. You're okay and I'm okay and we're okay together. But it's a delusion and it's a deception. This is not based on the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures. I think that coming to grips with the fact that we are not God is 
a key, key, key point in a proper estimation of who we are, who God is, and a right apprehension, a right humility for us in living out life. That if we can say and we can understand that God made us, we didn't make ourselves, God made me, I'm not my own. You know, in the New Testament it says you're not your own, you're bought with a price. That's, that's we belong to God in redemption, but whether or not we're redeemed, we belong to God by creation. There's no one on this earth who isn't God's possession by creation. There's no one here who is their own Lord and Master. Uh, in the days in which he professed Christ, Bob Dylan wrote a song many years ago. The title was, You've Got to Serve Somebody. He said it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you still got to serve somebody. Humanity is not autonomous. Not one person in this room, not one person on the face of the earth now or ever is absolutely autonomous. We have only the autonomy that God gives us and we'll give an account for that. We are not our own. If we're a Christian, we've been bought with a price, but whether we're a Christian or not, we belong to God because we're His creation. All of this is to say God may judge us. He has the right to judge us. He has the right to call the shots because He's the creator and everything here is His creation. Everything here is the clay He's formed. So He may judge us. But past that, God must judge us. God cannot not judge us because of the very nature of His character and His being. Uh, the key descriptive term of God in all the Bible is that God is holy. This is mean He's other than other things. He's absolutely unique. And generally we take this thought to mean uh, re related to a moral uh, apprehension of otherness that God is morally perfect. He is absolutely separated from anything that's deficient. The problem for us along this line is that because God is holy and perfect, those around Him must be holy and perfect as well. His creation must be holy and perfect as well. For God to not judge sin and deficiency, God would cease being God. So we start with this fact that God may judge because He's creator and we're His possession. But then you move to His character and you say, and God not only may judge, but God must judge. God cannot not judge. God must judge. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, the Jews were wondering why they were praying and God wasn't answering and they wanted to draw near and God seemed far away and God said this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He doesn't hear. This was a kind of judgment. This wasn't the flood. But God wanted to dwell intimately with Israel and the temple was there to do so. The sacrifices were there to do so. But God in this day, in Isaiah's day, God said, I've actually withdrawn myself from your presence. So you're praying and I'm not listening because your sins have made a separation and I cannot tolerate that sinful condition. And so this was, a, we could call it a halfway judgment, but God says, I've backed away from you. I've removed my intimate presence from you because of your sin. In Isaiah 5, verses 15 and 16, 
God talked about a day, He said, when the common man will be humbled and the man of importance will be abased, the eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. God's judgment displays His righteousness and His holy character and He cannot do otherwise. Now there are times and there are people and places and situations in which God defers judgment, but don't mistake that judgment must come. It cannot be otherwise. A holy God must judge sin. He cannot not judge it. Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord is righteous within her. This was an appeal to the Jews. He will, he will do no injustice. God can't do injustice. Every morning He brings His justice to light. He does not fail. Justice and judgment are part of God's essential nature and character. God must judge. And last, Romans 2.6, God will render to each person according to his deeds. God will render to each person according to his deeds because he's just and can't do otherwise. So, God may judge us because He's created. God must judge us because He's holy. Now, having said that, uh, if someone just heard this, they might default to that caricature of God that says God's a mean-spirited, judgmental God who wants to judge people, who delights in rubbing out the little guy that's not quite what he should be. Uh, the problem with that is, of course, it just doesn't hold up to the rest of the Scripture. And Bill, this was a great, great song we started with that was just perfect. Uh, the truth is, uh, God judges because He must, but God actually loves or delights in mercy. God delights in mercy, though He judges because He must. Back in Isaiah 28 again, uh, it's a great passage on this whole theme, this whole subject. When God talks about judgment in Isaiah 28, 21, He says this, The Lord will rise up as He did at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do His task, your version might say His work, His unusual task, and to work His work, His extraordinary work. Unusual and extraordinary here are two different Hebrew words that both mean about the same thing. And they mean something that is foreign. Something that's unusual by its very nature. So in Isaiah 28, when God says, I'm bringing judgment, He says that judgment is not what is typical of His nature. He says that judgment is the work that is not primarily characteristic of who He is or what He's like. Judgment in this sense is foreign to God. It's unusual. If you think of God primarily in terms of justice and judgment, you're missing the mark. Because Isaiah 28, 21 says it's not His normal work. Judging in Noah's day, judging Israel, judging at the end of the earth, God must do these things, but this judgment is not what is primarily characteristic of His person and His nature. So in contrast to judgment, the earth is a dog pen or it's a dirty dish. And God says, you know, 
It stinks, and I've got to wipe it out and start over. But what does he say in the middle of that? Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Your version may say Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Either word is good. Either one's a good fit here. Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you read uh, Genesis 6, 9, Genesis 7, 1, you know that Noah is described as a righteous man, a blameless man, a man that walked with God. But when you read those words, and we've already covered this ground, don't mistake that to mean Noah is without sin. When Noah gets on the ark, it's not because he was sinless. These words don't mean moral perfection. We've talked about this before. Old and New Testaments, this kind of description generally means a person has become what God intended them to be. They're the full-grown version. It doesn't mean they're morally perfect. And either testament you look at, it's clear that man, all of us from Adam on, are sinful. So these verses and these descriptions don't mean Noah gets favor because he's perfect. Grace here to Noah is no different than grace today to you or I or to any other person on the face of the earth who has sinned. This is God's favor and grace. It's not payment to someone who's earned righteousness. So don't mistake that when you read the, the passage. This is God's favor and grace, unmerited to Noah. It's not something Noah has earned. Noah was saved from the flood the same way you and I are saved today. The same way Abraham was saved and David and the early church and people will be saved in the future. Noah was saved by God's grace through faith. Some people get a mistaken notion about righteousness in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You earned your righteousness in the Old. No one ever earned righteousness. Noah was saved from the judgment of the flood by God's grace. Noah found grace through faith. How do I know it's through faith? Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah was saved from the judgment of the flood by God's grace through faith, no different than you and I are today. And in these other key New Testament passages, when it talks about this period of time in God's judgment, you always see, see the same element, God's deliverance, His mercy, His grace, in the midst of the judgment. So 2 Peter 2.5 says, God preserved Noah when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. Verse 7 says he rescued righteous Lot. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, maybe a, uh, Peter thinking of a day like ours, uh, Peter says the day will come when people say, where is his return? He said he'd come back, he hasn't come back. And they'll mock, it says. They'll mock the, uh, God and God's judgment and His righteousness and that this Messiah figure hasn't returned. And Peter says this, well, this is the deal. God's not forgotten His promise. He's not slow about His promise either. But God doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The God whom the world characterizes as judgmental puts judgment off because He's giving people an opportunity to repent and be saved because He delights in mercy, not in judgment. In fact, in Ezekiel, God says repeatedly, he takes no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. Judgment still comes. It must come. But that's not what God takes delight in. God delights in mercy and grace. Now, Jesus talks about Noah and the flood in the Gospels as an example of judgment and grace. And you see the same thing in 2 Peter and Jude. But you guys know the greatest demonstration of this coalescence or this mingling of God's judgment and God's grace in one place or one time is in Jesus Christ on the cross. You see God's judgment and you see God's grace in one person, in one place, at one time. Uh, Let me read from Romans 3. This is a difficult passage and so I'm sort of excerpting here. But this ties together both themes, judgment and mercy or judgment and grace. Paul says in Romans 3.23, All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're sinful. We have a deficiency. We've got a problem. God's justice requires judgment. Verse 24, But we're being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We get grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 talks about Christ being displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This is a little tricky thought or a syntax. But when Jesus hung on the cross suspended between heaven and earth and His blood flowed out, He was the mediating person or force that reconciled God with man. And God brought about this reconciliation publicly for everyone to see. Didn't do it in a corner. It was out in the open. And then he says at verse 26, So that he would be just, God's justice is upheld, his judgment righteously fell on his son for the sins of the world, but he's not only just in judgment, he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that when you see Christ on the cross, you see the judgment of God executed against sin. God must judge because He's holy and perfect. And God's judgment is poured out on Christ for us on the cross. But it's not just judgment because the judgment fell on Christ. Why? So that God could justify the one who has faith in Christ. So judgment and mercy, the epitome in judgment and mercy in time and history in the scriptures is Jesus Christ on the cross. If someone tells you or if they bring up this thought that God won't judge because he's a nice person, ask them why Jesus died on the cross. God the Father needs to apologize to God the Son. If God can overlook sin apart from Christ's crucifixion, if God judged Christ on the cross for the sins of the world, He cannot not judge someone else who refuses that payment. Does that make sense? Both of them meet in Jesus on the cross. When I read this Genesis passage, Genesis 6, um, I get us, I'm uneasy. And I'm uncomfortable because I look and I think, you know, I don't think the people in Noah's day were were very uh, much unlike me or you or the people we go to school with or work with. I think people in his day were pretty much like the people in our day and pretty much like the people that will follow us. And when I see that God wipes the slate clean in Noah's day, 
I realize if I was there, I'd have probably been wiped clean too. I'd have been wiped away also. You know, these passages that talk in judgment about Noah's day and Second Peter also talk about a future that God says He's not going to destroy the earth again in water, but He will destroy it again in fire, He says. There's a future judgment that's still coming. If you've trusted Christ, that judgment's already been met. And so God has nothing left for you but mercy and grace. And all you do to lay hold of it is believe. It's to receive the gift freely given. Let me revisit two passages as we close. One is, uh, remember that term blot out? Uh, I can't remember the Hebrew now, but uh, what was it? Oh, well, Makkah, I think. Yeah, Makkah. Uh, that term's used again by David in Psalm 51. David says in Psalm 51, 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. In that same Psalm, verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David says to the Lord, maybe thinking of Genesis 6, I don't know, would you take the bowl or the cup that is my sin and would you turn it upside down? Would you wash it out? Would you take all the sins that you know I'm guilty of and would you wipe them all away just as fully and really as you did the flood in Noah's day? Would you blot out, wipe away, wash off my sin? And then back to Isaiah 28. Verse 15 was the one that said that the people in Jerusalem had deluded themselves thinking they would escape judgment. The next verse, verse 16, is this. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I love this, that these verses are side by side. God basically says this, look, you can delude and deceive yourself into thinking either judgment's not coming or it's not going to touch you, but it's an empty and vain hope. Or he says in the next verse, you can stand on the rock that I've provided, knowing that judgment will come, but you'll be safe and undisturbed and unmoved standing on that rock. And all you have to do to be sitting safe on that rock is believe. Believe in the rock. And of course, you know in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. The New Testament writers say Christ is the cornerstone. In Isaiah, he says you can choose delusion and death in judgment, or you can stand on the rock God provides through faith and be undisturbed that the waters of judgment will go by you and you, you won't even, the ripples won't hurt you. Your toes won't get wet. You'll be undisturbed. The fact of God's judgment, the judgment in Noah's day, the fact that God judges and somebody's going to pay, it, it makes me think I've got to live humbly, I'm not my own. I'm God's possession. And thankfully, because God's poured out that righteous, appropriate judgment on Christ, not on me. Humility and thankfulness, that should characterize my life. And the second thing is this. Uh, we'll see this later. But, you know, every day Noah was building that boat, he was proclaiming the coming judgment. And this big boat on the hill... That was the only way out. 
And Christians are called today, no less than in Noah's day, to tell the world around us that judgment is coming and there's a way out. And, you know, if you share this with others, uh, you may, you may help, have to help them get over this thought of they are autonomous or God's a nice guy like them or whatever. But it behooves us as Christians, just like it did Noah, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, it behooves us like Noah to tell the world around us God's real, we belong to Him, He's holy, justice is required, judgment's coming, and there's a way out. And there's a way out. Let's pray. Lord, if we were responsible for our own sins, there would be nothing uh, for us but dread and judgment. God, thanks that by your mercy and grace you've taken our place, Lord Jesus, on the cross. You've borne the full penalty due our sins. And in your grace you provided redemption. Lord, I pray that you will help us to live soberly, humbly, thankfully, recognizing our precarious state before and the full redemption we have now in Christ. Lord, I pray that that same understanding would motivate us to share with others uh, a uh, sobering message of truth and justice and mercy to be found in you through Christ. In his name, amen.